0: Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation. FINRA member. Columbus, Ohio.
1: Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show for you.
4: John Bavan with us now, the head of the BlackRock Investment Institute. John, I've been following your research. You're writing, you know I do. And I'm pleased you're writing on something that I don't think enough people are thinking about the appropriate time horizon to bring inflation back to target with the circumstances, the backdrop that we have at the moment. John, what is it and why aren't we talking enough about it?
5: There used to be, I'm old school, I guess, but there used to be two key principles underlying monetary policy. One was that you know, you need to be thoughtful about dealing with trade-offs and being deliberate around that, and the other was about being forward-looking. Um, those two principles seem to be pretty much absent from the current discussion, um, and I think that speaks to the horizons here. Uh, we're dealing with a massive uh, shock that is more of a supply in nature, and that leads to, uh, you know, you just we're just talking about how much GDP cost we need to go through. We think the GDP cost is pretty significant. Uh, if we want to bring inflation down to too quickly, it's a two percent of GDP, um, you know, recession type. We need to uh, to go to in in, in short order. Um, that's a very brutal cost, and nowhere in the discussion right now you see this explicitly being acknowledged, being discussed, or hearing from central banks on how they want to navigate that. Uh, You know, we used to think that in the face of the shock, it would take longer to bring inflation back to target. Nobody is really making this argument.
3: John, I want you to talk about the asymmetries there of strong dollar versus weak dollar. Now we have strong dollar. I'm not going to ask you for a level on your Canada on, on Looney at a 132. But what is the asymmetric differences of a bold strong dollar versus a weak dollar reality? We don't have that right now. We have strong dollar. It seems new. Yeah, I I think, you know, I mean, we always break that down in terms of what we think is the the
5: key driver. Think of the currency being driven typically by two broad regimes, in my view. One is uh, interest rate differentials, and the other is um, the broad risk-on, risk-off global uh, sentiment. Um, I think we're in a world now that is mostly uh, driven by overall risk sentiment. So I see the gyration being about... Uh, whether we are we are risk averse, which tends to bid uh, provide a bid to the U.S. dollar, and that when that wanes, we see some weakening. So I, I think we haven't seen the full implication of this world yet. The pressure is going to put globally, um, and, you know, Canada is one place, but like emerging markets. Um, so that hasn't really played out yet. Um, and right. I, I think that's far from well. That's the future right. here.
3: I wanted to go there because Aussie yen is out one and a half standard deviations, which is a rare occurrence. Tell me of the Pacific Rim risks that we face now, or are they in some way protected from the tumult in the Western world? Uh, no, no one is protected, but uh, I think
5: there, there's own-grown kind of uh, headwinds, right? Uh, that we see. Uh, you know, we were just talking about lockdowns in, in China, so the, the the pull of growth there is certainly has been challenged. We've we've been neutral on on the region for for some time now uh, as a result of this, uh, and I think uh, a global recession uh, or slowdown that would be significant will have some rippling effect there as well. So I, I think we see these. Um, this part of the transmission of the slowdown uh, through the uh, impact of growth.
6: Hey Jean, good morning from London. What are the, uh, good afternoon even uh, now, time catching up with me. What are the monetary policy lags that we need to keep in mind when you're talking about uh, the tightening of policy as you are there and you're talking about the t- time horizons over which we should be correcting inflation. What are the lags in policy that you have in focus? I, I mean, I'm thinking here about the US.
5: So, so we... In general, uh, I think we're still in a world where, like, monetary policy uh, works with at least like you know a year to two year of lag. Like, Eighteen months is, is the is the number you would get from typically um, if you pin me to one number. Uh, I think that still is the case in this world, I, and I would argue that. Um, it might be even more delayed because uh, the, the, the interest rate here is not the cure for the source of the inflation we're, we're, we're experiencing. Um, so we will need to basically crush the interest rate sensitive part of the economy, which is not the culprit of the inflation at this point, to really offset uh, the other inflation pressures. And so uh, that needs to work its way through the system. None of the rate hikes we've seen so far uh, are really uh, containing inflation. We're getting now to the phase where it's going to be restrictive, it will have an impact, but that's going to be about a twenty twenty four story, really. Um, And that's why I think uh, we see a lot of optics of central banks talking tough on inflation, but this is really optics and politics of inflation, not really the economics of inflation.
4: So, Jean, let's talk about what it would take for you to get bullish on this equity market. Jean, what do you need to see?
5: We need to see a couple of things, right? I I think now we're – Uh, equities uh, and uh, generally are reflecting uh, a path of policy tightening uh, that is uh, more or less in line with what we think will materialize. So, um, you know, Jackson Hole has, I think, crushed any hopes of uh, backing off from hiking and tension soon. I think equities are starting to reflect that properly. The part that is not yet in the price is um, the earnings uh, story. And, you know, we think we're going to see a recession early 2023. Uh, in in the U.S., but uh, it's it's happening earlier and deeper in Europe, and that is not reflected in the, in the equity price. So to be to turn bullish, which will be the big call to make over the next few months, is when we're going to be able to start to look through uh, the size of this recession. I have more handle on this, uh, and the second is when we get to the point where uh, we get some sense that central banks are waking up to the damage that is being caused and are starting to take that into account. So when we're going to see to see start to see sign of that. I think we'll be now in a position to really talk about a version of a pivot or slowing down or stopping. And yep. when we, once we have visibility on this, then I think that's going to be um, a more positive backdrop.
4: We'll catch up soon on it. John. really deeply thoughtful stuff. We appreciate it. Jean-Bavon there of the BlackRock Investment Institute.
0: Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio.
1: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
3: It is a crisis in Germany. It is a crisis in Anna Edwards, United Kingdom. And it goes to, as John mentioned, the grid. Francisco Blanche, I've seen endless, endless studies. Davos, you could fill up the promenade with all the fancy studies about what to do. Why can't we fix this energy crisis? Why can't we fix the global grid of electricity and hydrocarbons?
2: Well, uh, Tom, you've you've, uh, uh, kind of brought in a lot of issues into a single question. But I think think the the best answer uh, that I can give you is is the uncertainty that we have created uh, in terms of what the future demand for energy looks like. Um, If you you start with the International Energy Agency's uh, scenarios for 2050, for decarbonization, um, there's a huge gap between the business as usual scenario the aggressive uh, scenario, or the net zero scenario. And, and it's really hard to tell which way we're gonna go into 2050, whether um, right. global coal demand is gonna collapse, or maybe it's gonna hold in a little bit, or maybe oil demand will collapse, or maybe won't. And, and I think um, the same thing applies to electricity, right? Um, so all of that's kind of really difficult, right. uh, make it very difficult for companies to make a decision in terms of how to allocate their capital. And then of course, we've had the Russia-Ukraine situation, which has made things a little worse.
3: Um, surveillance research, Francisco, is that you and Savita Subramanian are actually on speaking terms at Bank of America. Well, she has provided stunning leadership in the quantitative aspects of ESG. When you have a cup of coffee with her, can you state that ESG is here to stay or is it dead with the war in Ukraine?
2: Look, I mean, I think ESG is here to stay uh, in, in most people's minds. Uh, I think that's true for investors, true for governments. Uh, which, which I think ultimately means for a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, the pieces of the energy sector you're talking about, like how how you fix them, I think you're going to have to end up with a lot more government involvement. We've seen that already uh, in Germany and in France uh, with with uh, the takeover of uh, Uniper and uh, EDF. I think we'll see just a lot more participation of of governments generally. Um, even when you look at oil and gas investments, uh, OPEC uh, this time around, particularly the Gulf Corporation Council um, uh, countries, have actually been leading investment relative to other parts of the world. Um, so, so I think I think governments are just going to get a lot more involved in in the energy space on on a forward basis um, to to essentially get us through the current mess.
4: Francisco, do you think climate change has become a convenient excuse for some of the challenges we face right now, when a lot of it is about investment, a lack thereof, a lack of planning? And I understand we've had a big shock this year, but I think that's a convenient excuse in the minds of many people, Francisco, that we've tried to transition too fast, too quickly and move away from fossil fuels without a more resilient plan in place. Which one is it?
2: Uh, look i mean I, I think i think the uh the uh, uh, climate change data that we're getting every day uh really points to the urgency of doing something about the carbon emissions that we have on on a daily basis uh, we are warming up the planet very quickly and we've seen that in pakistan more recently uh with pretty catastrophic outcomes uh we've seen a complete drop in 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 uh, water reservoirs in uh, in the alps as well uh, which is leading to to lower uh, water river levels uh, across europe so i think climate change is real we're seeing uh, one of the biggest droughts, I think is uh, I think you guys put that out recently. Uh, in Europe, we have the biggest drought in five hundred years. Um, mm. So you're having a lot of a lot of uh, data points out there that really suggest that the climate change is happening very quickly and and that's further straining our our energy system as it would. Now, um I, I do think we wouldn't be in the current situation if we hadn't been losing as much Russian energy as we have over the course yes. of the past six months, right?
6: Francisco, can I ask you about proposals in Europe to cap gas prices and what you think of that? I spoke to a guest earlier, and this goes to what you were saying there about relying on Russian energy. I I spoke to a guest earlier who said she doesn't want to see a cap on gas prices. She thinks fiscal stimulus should just be given to those who are struggling to pay because with, with a cap, you don't have quite such a strong price signal. And we need that to make the transitions and the investments that you talk about.
2: I, I think that's completely wrong. I, I mean, I think you need to put a bit of a cap on the price of gas, and you need to bring. Remember, the price of gas is setting the marginal price of electricity, right? So let's say that uh, let's say that uh, um, you know if the price of electricity is a thousand euros a megawatt hour, you're not really incentivizing anything at that price point, um, and 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 there is a clear market failure that I think um, I think. Um, should encourage governments to take action here. Um, and, and again, it, it's pretty simple stuff. I mean, you're, you're above 200 euros a megawatt hour. Most European industrials cannot operate, right? So, yeah. when you're at a thousand euros a megawatt hour, this is past beyond the point of demand destruction, um, and and it's also past the point of of uh, supply increases of of renewable energy in the future. You don't need a thousand euros a megawatt hour to encourage wind or solar power. You need mm-hmm. a much much lower number. So I think I think governments are taking the right steps uh, to try to cap the price of the price of gas. Um, and And again, it's going to be a subsidy for sure. Um, but I, I do think that the consequences of not tackling the current shortage of gas in Europe uh, are, could be devastating to both consumers and industry uh, over the course of the next uh, of the next six months. Remember, you're probably destroying about about five percent of European uh, power gas and power demand every month with this kind of price levels Unreal. that we're seeing here.
4: So- these are just massive numbers, Francisco that I don't think we're still fully internalized and recognized how bad this is going to be. Francisco Blanch there of Bank for America Global Research. Francisco, you're one of the best. We appreciate your time.
3: Rubila Faruqi joins us, chief U.S. economist, high-frequency economics, always channeling the international views of Carl Weinberg. Rubila, bring it back to America and bring it back to what matters, which is in the ADP report, wages clocked 7%. What will we see on a wage spiral tomorrow?
7: Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, What we're expecting to see is, uh, you know, still elevated wage gains, uh, you know, maybe a slight tick up, uh, you know, still a five-handle on-year-on-year changes in average hourly earnings. Uh, You know, the, the central point of this is what are we seeing on supply? And we really are not seeing any relief on supply. The participation rate has gone down. If you look at the civilian labor force, it's declined in three of the last four months. And that is where the stresses lie. And, uh, you know, without that and without any relief on wage gains, you know, the Fed is going to remain focused on these things. And really, the trajectory is not going to change at all, uh, you know, on tomorrow's numbers.
3: I find the analysis of a Fed action, and this goes to Kashkari of Minneapolis, but a Fed action to desire to move the unemployment rate higher to be way too simple. What's the complex part of that analysis that matters for our viewers and listeners?
7: Well, I mean, what we're seeing right now is severe dislocations in the labor market, right? We're seeing supply and demand imbalances. Does the Fed necessarily want to see the unemployment rate go up? No, absolutely not. not. I mean, that's not what central banks want. But, you know, in this instance, you know, we keep hearing about a tight labor market, and Powell, Chair Powell has said a labor market that is, you know, tight to an unhealthy level. So that's what we're trying to figure out. How can this uh, Fed, you know, orchestrate a rate-hiking cycle where there's still positive growth but and, you know, unemployment goes up but not by much? And I think the best case for them is that, uh, you know, you, you, you know, the demand side is so strong that you're going to see limited uh, increase in layoffs. But uh, I'm not really sure that that uh, is really possible.
6: OK, Rabila, good morning from London. Uh, you talked about participation having dropped off and clearly during COVID and in the immediate aftermath. It was obvious why that was. What's your analysis now of why participation is so poor? There are similarities with the UK market and it's clear why it's, why it's poor here. But what's the story in the U.S.? I mean, what we're seeing is, you know, uh,
7: elevated retirements that really contributed in a large way. We still have people who are suffering the effects of COVID, <coughs> excuse me, who are still affecting, you know, uh, being affected by the effects of COVID. And you're still seeing, you know, some challenges uh, in terms of, you know, prime, rate, prime age participation in terms of childcare mm-hmm. issues, health issues, elder care issues. So those, still, those things are still, uh, you know, persisting. And it's really not clear that we're going to see any relief. What we did see last time around was, you know, as we were going into uh, in 2019 before the COVID crisis, what we saw was people, a strong labor market did draw people back into the labor force. And that's what the Fed really is looking for, that strong job growth, high inflation. Hmm. you know, the law of uh, higher wages, maybe that is where the relief comes in. But really, that's not something that is part of a base case scenario anymore. You know, we've been expecting for participation
6: right. to go up, and we really haven't seen it. So if we want job openings to come down, it has to come from, from unemployment. It has to come from, from layoffs then, Rabila?
7: Well, not necessarily. We do think that demand for labor is going to go down. Uh, but you know, we're trying to figure out why are layoffs so low. Is it just that demand is strong, or is it that right. companies are also reluctant? You know, they've they've suffered. Uh, you know, for you know, persistent yeah. shortages. So are they just hanging on to their workforce? Are they just reluctant to let right. go of their workers?
3: Rubila, here's the mystery question right now. <laughs> what is non-farm payroll's normal number? It used to be 200, and we'd model out 150. We all got that wrong. That was a great wrong call of a decade. We're now rocking 280, 300,000, 320,000 per month. What's normal?
7: It's very difficult to assess what this labor market is. You know, what what normal is, where we are going to balance out. Um, if we look at the numbers, you know, break even is probably around a hundred thousand, maybe slightly really? less. Really, really. But yeah, exactly. And but again, you know, we are basing our analysis on things that prevailed before the before the pandemic. So it's really difficult to assess. Right now, what we're seeing is you know extremely solid job growth. Uh, and also I mean it's it's really not tying in with the concept of uh, you know economy that has really you know just flattened out in the first half of the year. but you know what's what's appearing now is companies still uh, you know uh, adding to their uh, workforce and uh, the unemployment rate at historical lows maybe even, Set to go down a little bit more, and uh, you know, a Fed that uh, is facing a huge challenge.
4: Rabida, a massive challenge, and not just the Fed, the ECB has a challenge of its own. Rabila Faruqi, there of high frequency economics.
0: Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio.
1: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work
3: It's a rare and beautiful thing, John. She's here for... What, John, is this like a two-hour interview we're I doing? I think this is two hours. <laughs> we, could, we could do it now. Pushed Features into like of 10 minutes, Tom. Here's what you need to know. In 1961, a young boy named Mick Jagger went to the London School of Economics and went down in flames in mathematics. Tracy Alloway followed on from Mick Jagger and actually got through the rigorous math course to get your way along at LSE and went on to a sterling journalism career, including work, working with Mr. Weisenthal on Odd Lots, and she joins us here on the Aerospace Engineer from Minneapolis. Does Kashkari know <laughs> what he's talking about?
8: Well, the interesting thing about Kashkari is that he's transformed from the Fed's biggest dove into the biggest hawk. And he says it's because he's been watching the data. Data didn't come in quite the way he thought it would. So like Keynes, he changed his mind. Right. So that's the interesting thing about him at the moment.
3: I I look at this, Tracy. What's so important here is what do the monetary pros think? It was Clarida and now it's maybe John Williams and a few others. What do they think of presidents shooting from the hip? (laughs)
8: That's quite a question. What I will say, you know, Jonathan kind of alluded to this about the interview that we had with Kashkari, where he was talking about how he welcomed that stock reaction. Stocks actually going down following Jackson Hole. I cannot believe that markets were so surprised. You have had a Fed and you've had central bankers on the Fed talking about how they want financial conditions to tighten for months and months and months. And a component of financial
4: conditions, of course, it's stocks. Financial conditions, they need stocks lower, they need spreads wider. Tracy, what was the biggest piece of pushback you had against that? Because I was watching all the commentary over Twitter, the people who were surprised and you and I who were surprised about them being surprised. What was the biggest piece of pushback that you saw from this interview?
8: There were a lot of people talking about how the Fed said the quiet part out loud, but these are the same people who would make jokes about how the Fed only wants to push up asset prices for the past five or 10 years, right? If the Fed only wants to push up asset prices, then they can have situations where they also want to push them down. Now is arguably one of those times The Fed is explicitly telling you that it needs financial conditions to tighten in order to get a grip on inflation. The components of financial conditions got things like mortgage spreads, bonds, and of course, stocks. So I'm not entirely sure why people were so surprised.
6: Mm, uh, Hi, Tracy. Yeah, it was a really fascinating conversation that you had with him. I mean, if you want tighter financial conditions, you mentioned the other ways you get tighter financial conditions. Do we have a sense of Which of the elements the Fed would prefer? I mean, we've got Kashkari saying stocks doesn't mind if they go down, but that's not quite the same thing as saying, you know, you really want them to drop.
8: Yeah, well, I think the big question in markets right now is why, even with all this Fed jawboning, why financial conditions haven't tightened more? Why are investors, I guess, dragging their feet when it comes to this issue? Does the Fed have a preference on exactly what moves the most? I think it doesn't want to see anything break in the financial market. It doesn't necessarily Mm. want to cut off capital inflows. It doesn't want to see a seize up in the credit market, which is something that we almost saw over the summer. Mm. But that said, it still wants something to happen. And the longer this sort of tension, the standoff between investors and the Fed goes on, the more likely we are to see a big move from the central bank that actually gets us there
6: and that was really interesting in the context of what we've saw from UBS and others around credit markets just in the last 24 hours saying credit markets are simply not pricing in enough a chance of a recession. We saw this from UBS. They said credit markets, by their analysis, are just giving in a 25% chance when actually they think it should be pricing in for a much higher chance that we get a recession in the US. Maybe this is the mismatch that you're talking about.
8: Yeah, this is kind of the amazing thing about the credit market at the moment. So you look at something like high yield spread, so risk premiums on junk rated bonds. These are the things that are supposed to show concerns about a looming recession first. And we are far, far from those levels. I think it's something like 800 basis points. Points on the high yield index. We're at like 450 right now. And then you have other people who are saying, well, don't look at junk bonds because the junk bond market has changed so much over the years. You know, it's mostly double B-rated debt now. It's far <laughs> from what it used to be. Look at something like leverage loans. These are the floating rate loans that junk-rated companies took out en masse for the past five years. They're supposedly very risky, or there are some people in the market that think they are very risky. And so those are where the first signs of stress could show up. But even if you look at the S&P LSTA Leverage Loan Index, we're at something like 95 on the cash level now. Right. 85 is generally considered distressed.
3: Tracy, when you were at the Convent of the Sacred Heart in Tokyo a million years <laughs> ago, you used to sneak into the Imperial Bar at the Imperial Hotel. The How Boy did Red you Bar. know that? that? You know, the Rumor has it. What does Japan do? As JP Morgan says, there could be a 140, 145 yen. Everybody's standing around in the West going, no big deal. I don't buy it.
8: Mm. Well, this is the other big question that I have about the Fed right now, and I actually asked Kashkari about this. What happens to the rest of the world when you are raising rates at the fastest pace in decades? We've already seen the dollar appreciate considerably. We haven't necessarily seen U.S. financial conditions move as much as we might expect, but we know that financial conditions elsewhere in the world are tightening. That seems like a problem for me when you're talking about economies, you know, Europe, emerging markets, to some extent Japan, That are now experiencing an energy crisis and everything is priced in dollars. The Fed is heaping more pain on the rest of the world. The U.S. economy is relatively resilient right now, but at some point you're going to get that boomerang effect. That's what Kashkari called it, where it comes back and it impacts the U.S. economy.
4: Interesting. Tracy, it's been too long. Is the podcast out right now?
8: <laughs> it's out right now. Fantastic. Check out Odd Lots. I was talking
4: oh, here's with... here's the promo. Th- Gotta have it. Come on, come squeeze on, it come in. on. That's the come one. I Tom. was
8: talking <laughs> with Tom, and, you know, he was actually our first guest when we launched the podcast five or six
4: years <laughs> ago. The show went up ago. from there, John. <laughs> downhill from there, or yeah. uphill from there, <laughs> up, there. Up, up there. Hill, uphill. Uphill. Say uphill yes. Tracy Alloway, Joe Weissenthal of Odd Lots. You guys could do Pharaoh, you know. You could do brilliant. a whole football. That is really downhill, Tom. I think they want some expertise on markets, not on football at the weekend. This is the
3: Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keene, and this is Bloomberg.
8: Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of InTrust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.